Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State Athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with Josh and Daniel from collegefootballnerds.com. If you are unfamiliar with their site, we have been including their computer model predictions on our game day tailgate episodes whenever they covered an Ohio State game throughout the season, and they put together these great videos breaking down the biggest matchups of every week from a statistical and analytical perspective. You can find their videos on their website or on YouTube, and you can follow them on Twitter at CFBNerds. For the Fiesta Bowl, their computer model has the game about as close as you can possibly imagine, with Clemson projected to score 27.85 points to Ohio State's 27.4. Josh, whom you will hear explain the model at the top of our conversation, picked Ohio State to win 31-28, while Daniel, who will get into the conversation after a few minutes, predicted Clemson 26, Ohio State 21. Also in the episode, Josh talks about some tweets that they sent out about how Ohio State's offense, and specifically the running game, might have a formational alignment advantage against Clemson's defense. We will put a link to those tweets in the show notes and in the article version of this episode on the website. Okay, with all of that housekeeping now out of the way, here's my conversation with Josh and Daniel. So I feel like the first question we have to get into is what makes your model? We are very accustomed to talking about different types of analytics, whether that's SP plus or F plus or all of these different things, but all of them have their own kind of different formulas and algorithms and things that I am not nearly intelligent enough to understand. So what goes into your system to your model how does it differ from some of the other ones that we're familiar with and and what is kind of the without giving away anything that's proprietary of course what's the secret sauce for your college football nerds computer model i think the biggest key to any model is that you've just got to be directed in what it is you're trying to model try to understand what numbers you think are valuable what you don't um and also try to be realistic with how much you're injecting your own opinion uh, into the modeling. And our our model is fairly straightforward and simple in terms of what data we feed it. Uh, it's maybe more complicated in its application of how it extrapolates data from that. Um, conceptually, we like to look at per play data. Uh, most models do. SP Plus certainly does. Um, it, it's a different concept, I think, than Bill Connolly. I, I was, you know, I, I followed SP Plus in that development for many years. Um, but for a lot of those models, they're trying to come up with a rating, right? To compare teams all across college football, rank them one to 130. When you do that, you need to have an, a, a number assigned to each team. And you can look at different factors like explosiveness. Um, you can give a rating for your efficiency, et cetera. Um, but what that really does is it tells you a sort of an overall quality metric, single metric for a team. That's not always the greatest if you're wanting to compare two particular teams in a matchup because things that you know, maybe make you really, really good. Let's say, um, you know, as Ohio State fans, you understand this. And it's something we talked about a lot on the show. Um, Ohio State under JT Barrett had incredible efficiency metrics. Those efficiency metrics didn't really translate, though, when you played a top five or top 10 team, because zone read offenses don't always sort of, you know, they don't scale, as I tend to put it. Our model is entirely matchup based. So we build sort of a picture of how you've done against your opponent's um, how your performance relates to them and then their relative strengths and how they did against other teams to get sort of a snapshot of how you compare to other teams they played. Uh, and then based on that, we get 
you know, a projection of your team, the other team. And then, you know, based on the particular matchups in that game, what your strengths are and what their weaknesses are, we come up with a sort of a performance prediction. And then the second half of our model is taking that data and then looking at your past history and saying, okay, with this kind of performance data this season, what does your team look like? Uh, and again, a philosophical difference for us, we're trying to do a model for a particular game. So we're not looking at past year's data. Uh, most advanced metrics look at a lot of stuff like recruiting rankings and past years. From a predictive standpoint, it helps, especially if you're giving a single number, uh, because you need to have an over idea of what the overall quality or talent level is of a team. But we really care about your performance this year. And if I only look at this year's data, I can I can sort of account for all that other stuff. Um, but I think what's interesting is that we don't, by not including things like recruiting rankings, by not including, you know, me injecting something about injuries, um, our model is self-generating. It's generating without me setting any of the variables in the system. I let the system actually set the variables itself based off, you could call it a, a machine learning concept looking at how you've done over the past season. Um, and in that way, we get a very neutral, very objective B-plus game versus B-plus game baseline for a discussion. And it's not perfect. There are ways I can make it more predictive. I mean, there's ways I could do things like, um, you know, people pointed out if I averaged in the score from your game when you played that team last year, it would actually increase the predictivity by some percentage. But that wouldn't be as informative because I'd rather know when this team, like let's say Clemson, who was a world beater last year, kind of sucked the first half of the year. Um, and, and that's sort of the philosophy of our model and how we've approached statistical analysis. So when you go to do like your videos around the big games of every week, and obviously you're doing them for the bowl games, and we're going to talk about the one you did for the Fiesta Bowl, how difficult is it to compare things like, say, Ohio State's schedule against the Big Ten? Uh, against Clemson's schedule against the ACC. Uh, they didn't have any common opponents. They didn't have, I mean, I'm sure that there's some level of, of degrees of Kevin Bacon away from playing each other, but they didn't have any direct one-to-one -one comparisons. So how difficult is it to kind of match up who their opponents were to generate the numbers that you're putting into the model? Because there's been a lot of discussion, and including on your video, about it's hard to really know if the numbers really reflect anything that is applicable in this game because really neither of these teams have been challenged by any team that looks like what they're going to face in Glendale, Arizona. Ohio State certainly has played good teams, uh, probably more so than Clemson, Wisconsin, Penn State, Michigan, but they're not the same types of good teams that they're going to play in the semifinal. And I think all that's fair. Um, the thing I would sort of emphasize in college football today is that we're all very isolated. And we talk about good schedules and bad schedules. There's, there's two sides to that coin. One is that your numbers can be inflated by playing bad teams. But two, you know, a computer model can kind of account for that to a certain degree, right? Like our model is entirely comparative. So when you're doing teams within the same conference, uh, you know, you have a Minnesota and a, and a, you know, Ohio State or Wisconsin, especially at the end of the year, once there's a lot of connectivity, it can really account for the fact that, yeah, I mean, Minnesota's look really good, but they play bad competition. Um that's tougher when you're comparing teams between two different conferences, though, uh, because right now conferences just aren't playing each other very much. And, and without playing each other, really, <clears throat> in terms of pure and neutral stats, it's it's almost impossible to adjust for it. Now, you can do things and really go in and forcibly tweak it. And I know Bill Connolly did that this past year. He actually injected like an extra level of, of tweaking, if you will 
where he overweights uh, non-conference games and looks at those performance and sort of extrapolates back an adjustment factor for the entire conference. And he did that because uh, a group of five teams are being over overrated or overranked in the metrics. I still think they are. Uh, maybe we can talk about that in a second. That I, I think advanced metrics aren't aren't doing a good enough job. But in our model, you know, he, here's a stat, okay? And I don't want this to be taken as a, a pro, you know, pro whatever conference thing. The Big Ten played nine teams out of conference. And with 14 teams played only nine power five teams out of conference, okay? Uh, the ACC played 13 out of with 14 teams. Um, more notably, the Big Ten only played three teams with a winning record. All were seven win teams. The Big Ten went two and one in those games. But they're, the key to me isn't the, really the record. It's the, the number of data points are only three. The ACC played seven teams with a winning record. They were one in six, but they played seven of them. So our model standpoint, our model gets that the ACC sucks. It sees that because they went <laughs> one in six. Our model doesn't even really know how to adjust the Big Ten. So it just kind of leaves them as average. And maybe they're well above average. Maybe they're below average. But it doesn't really know how to adjust from that baseline because there haven't been enough data points. Now, we sometimes are critical of nine-game conference schedules Purely because as us, selfishly, we want to do these models, man, with increased conference schedules, because it's unfair, you have nine games versus eight, and I get that. The The way they've made it fair is by not playing Power 5 teams out of conference. Um, it, it just gives us less data points. And so that's one half of the coin. The other half is just quality and quality of play. And with Ohio State, I, I think there you have a better picture of what Ohio State is than Clemson. Now, we've always said that if you crush really bad teams, that can be as much as an indicator as beating good totally. teams by 10. But yeah. um, I, I do think, too, with, with Ohio State and Clemson, and this is a point we made that kind of got missed in our video. Ohio State has played good teams, good enough for us, us to have a fair picture of Ohio State. But you don't really know how a team is going to do against elite competition until they play elite competition. And particularly one of the biggest matchups in this game is the Clemson passing game and the vertical passing game versus Ohio State. And there is no analog for Ohio State in that particular matchup. So we know nothing about Clemson. I mean, their competition's terrible. They could come out and lay an absolute egg and nobody's going to be shocked. But I think even with Ohio State in a much better level of competition, it never arose to a certain point that really painted a clear picture. Um, and, and the reality is that's just the way college football is when we don't have enough you know, quality out-of-conference P5 data points. Yeah, I, I for one would be quite shocked if Clemson came out and laid an egg. Uh, despite their schedule, that would that would shock me um, as an Ohio State fan and someone who remembers the 2016 Fiesta Bowl. But uh, Daniel, we talked a lot about uh, the model, but uh, going over to you, one of the things that you guys discussed in the video was that matchup between uh, Ohio State's pass defense and Clemson's passing offense. To me... One of the weaknesses on Ohio State's team that has been exploited in the latter part of the season when they were playing the better competition, again, not passing teams, they were certainly run first teams, um, but that was the linebacking core and getting rid of the ball quickly, mainly because opposing offenses wanted to avoid the opportunity for Chase Young to get into the backfield. As you look at a, a team like Clemson, who traditionally is a deep threat passing team, should Ohio State be more concerned about those types of of, of plays where uh, Trevor Lawrence can throw the ball deep to T. Higgins or whomever? Or is there an opportunity for Clemson maybe to do something against type where they can exploit the weakness for Ohio State's linebackers who really are pretty average or below average in coverage? 
well, from a linebacking standpoint, we saw this with with Alabama a lot, and that's we use Alabama as the sort of analogy in a lot of these because. Alabama has been where Ohio State is right now. And so we pick apart the small things where they're bad. And even if they're average, an elite team will pick on it. But, you know, a a lot of people think that Ohio State is susceptible to the pass. And for us, it's a question mark. I'm not saying for sure they're susceptible to the pass because in both the games where they had issues facing, you know, other teams had some success being Michigan and Wisconsin, they had important guys out that defend the pass. Um, and, and Michigan did go out of their way to neutralize Chase Young, like you said. Um, I think every team in college football is currently struggling to find inside linebackers that can defend an RPO, that can defend a quick screen game, and that is a problem. For Ohio State, it's really, though – sorry, my dog's freaking out in the background. For Ohio State, really, it's more can they neutralize it enough that it doesn't become something that completely beats them – where if we look at Clemson, Alabama last year, it wasn't the short passing game. It was having injuries and, you know, just subpar players on the outside where they couldn't neutralize the deep passing game enough. And that was their Achilles heel. And I'm not convinced Clemson can drive the field on an elite defense consistently. And I think they knew that last year. And that's why they went bombs away and it worked for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for them against an Ohio State. Yeah, I think the the consensus from all of the people who are much smarter than I am and including now you what you just said is that Ohio State has a much better chance on offense to put together consistent drives while Clemson if they're going to score points in bunches it's going to be quickly and with deep threats and I and I think that that kind of has borne out in the competition that they've seen this year. Clemson was able to do that on mass uh, against obviously much different competition than they'll see in the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, but Ohio State has been able to score quickly at times, but they, because they are much more of a ground game than they were last season, J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields, even Master Teague to a lesser degree, have been able to extend drives by picking up six, seven, eight, nine yards uh, a carry. And that goes into one of the things that you guys broke down. You You looked at the Clemson rush offense versus the Ohio State rush defense, uh, Ohio State rush uh, offense versus Clemson rush defense, and vice versa on the passing uh, as well. And what I thought was really interesting is that in both cases, in terms of running, both when Clemson had the ball, when Ohio State had the ball, you gave the advantage to Ohio State, especially when Ohio State was running. What did you see either in the stats or from watching games? Because I know it is a point that you guys also watch games, not just the box scores. Um what did you see from this Ohio State rushing attack that leads you to think that they'll be able to move the ball against Clemson's defense, which has notoriously been pretty stingy against the run, but obviously it's a much different constructed defense this year than they have in previous seasons? Uh, so I guess I'll answer that question. Um, I, I, it's really twofold. One, Ohio State have been very effective running the ball all season. Uh, you know, the 5.7 yards per carry in a season average is pretty impressive, right? And it's against all FBS competition. Uh, there's no FCS game and 12 yards per carry thrown in there, which we see sometimes. I'll say for our stats, if you ever look at our channel, we actually filter out FCS stats and basically everything we do, including the model. Um, but I mean, Ohio State on one hand has been very effective. And uh, I've said this a million times. And the way Ohio State's offense has been geared to work this year is you go three and four wide a lot. You know, you're three wide with a tight end or you're, you're a four wide set. Um, and then you'll have Dobbins in the backfield and fields. And it's just, it's really difficult to defend because you've got these guys, you get your guys in really wide, uh, the, the wide outs really wide to the boundaries. 
And you've got a quarterback in fields that has the arm strength to actually deliver those breaking throws to the outside, um, which takes a lot of velocity. And at the same time, you've got Dobbins and fields, both as runners in the inside. So if you do the numbers game, and then we were talking about this some on our channel, it, it's just, it's hard to defend because if you want to be man up on all the receivers, that's four, four players, right? And now you need to have a guy to account for Dobbins and a guy to account for fields. And that's six players. That only leaves you the five guys. And that's, you know, three down linemen and two safeties or four down linemen and one safety. And Clemson likes to have four guys on the line of scrimmage. So you're, you know, single high or you're giving up something against the run or you're not going to spy fields and account for him. And there's just no way to deal with it and be remotely sound against the passing game. It's hard to stop that rush offense and not be really susceptible to the pass. I think Penn State and Wisconsin, and I took a snapshot of it. Wisconsin was playing with an extra guy in the box. They put seven guys in the box, and then they would be, you know, in a three-wide set, they would actually be man up on every receiver, and then the safety would be completely off screen. And that's because they felt like, you know, the the zone read is effectively a blocker. So for them to have numbers with a tight end, five guys in the line of scrimmage, that's six blockers, you need to have a guy to tackle the running back. And so that's the seventh guy, and, and you know, you get the zone read kind of component into it. And Penn State and Wisconsin were effective against the run. But they gave up a ton of yards passing because they were in a single high safety look the whole time against three and four wide sets. Clemson's going to have the same problem. But moreover, sort of two things about Clemson. One, the rush defense did get run on some. North Carolina and Florida State both put up for over four yards per carry. Uh, North Carolina State actually had four yards per carry in that loss. Now, a lot of that sometimes is late, but the ACC was really weak. And, and the second point, you know, kind of dragging on here, but the second point I want to really emphasize and I don't think this has gotten enough discussion, is, is how much Clemson was dependent on that 2015-2016 crop of defensive linemen. 2016 starting front seven had Lawrence, Watkins, Wilkins, Farrell, with Huggins and Bryan as top reserves and Kendall Joseph starting as linebacker. So that was 2016. In 2018, you had Lawrence again. You had Wilkins again. You had Ferentz, uh, Farrell again. Your two top reserves, Bryan and Huggins, were still playing, and you also had Joseph starting at linebacker. So that front seven, like five out of seven pieces were there for three years. Both titles they won in 16 and 18 used the same front, more or less. I don't think people understand how unusual that was. I don't think people understood, for example, they lost more first-round draft picks in the D-line last year than Alabama lost in the last eight years. And, you know, when you have that, people talk about Clemson reloading defensively. They didn't have to reload. I mean, they went from 15 when they lost the title to 16. And in 16, they brought in maybe the best group of defensive linemen in, you know, program history. And then they just went three year, you know, three to four years with that group. Now it's a completely unproven group. But my question is, and we, you know, with, is this a group that can actually play run defense compared to what they had last year? Because they were so good. It's just they haven't played anybody with a pulse that could actually challenge them. And that includes teams like Texas A&M, who even if they were somewhat kind of sort of competitive, losing all their games in the SEC, they never were able to run the ball. Um, and then a few teams they played that could run the ball in the ACC, kind of sort of. I mean, they actually gave up respectable rushing yards. So I do think there is a major question mark on if Clemson can get pushed around on the front seven. They're small. They're not nearly as talented. They've got one top 100 guy on that line. Um, which, I, again, I don't think people understand, you know, like K.J. Henry is a top 14 player. He's third string. I mean, Xavier Thomas is the one truly elite guy in the defensive line. It's not talent-wise anything that's going to shock Ohio State. 
they're very unproven and they're you know not overly experienced. There, there's an opportunity there for Ohio State to have an advantage. All right, that's that's a lot to to digest because I feel like Ohio State fans are preparing themselves, uh, at least the the ones that are up in our mentions, uh, for a a a fight, and it's hard to kind of pick apart because so much of the national media narrative has been. That while it's just a close game, your model, all of the different analytics have it very close. Vegas has it as a two point game. It feels like Ohio State is a, is a prohibitive underdog, uh, in this game. So knowing that Ohio State, at least from that perspective, does have a legitimate chance to not only move the ball, but score, hopefully will make people feel a little bit more comfortable, uh, with how we go into things, uh, with this game. But one of the things you broke down in there is the fact that fields, is an option in the running game. Uh, and something you guys talked about in the video was that would be contingent on how healthy Justin Fields is. Now, obviously, there'll be three weeks between games for him, uh, but things were a little rough for him uh, in the last few games, having to wear a brace on his knee, having a strain of his MCL. Um, how much do you think that that would negate Ohio State's rushing advantage if Justin Fields is... 60%, 70%, 80%, whatever percentage you want to throw at it. But if he's not able to go and be the running threat that he was at his peak this season, how much of that advantage that you think that Ohio State has in running the ball is no longer there uh, against Clemson's defense? I think it's it's twofold. So it's it's not just what he brings to the table in the run game. Although I will say Dobbins is highly underrated as a running back. And everyone's talking about ETN in this game, and, and I, I, I'm frustrated because it's like every time Ohio State plays a good running back on the other side of the field, nobody's looking at Dobbins' numbers. Same thing with against Wisconsin. We like we like Jonathan Taylor a lot, but we actually like Dobbins more. Um, my concern with the run game, it's less about the run game and more about the offense because we don't necessarily know if Fields is a top-flight passer um, I, I think he is. I do think there is some opportunity there, though, if he has to be a pocket guy and, and pick apart a defense that there's some concerns. We've seen him throw high a lot. It happened a lot uh, against Wisconsin. Um, we've seen this and it's more like we've been saying so far. It's a question mark. It's not an, an absolute negative. It's just a question mark. Um, but we did see in the second half against Wisconsin when they were like, OK, it's pretty clear we need him to run a little bit. Um, let's sort of take the, the training wheels off, let him run some, and it opened up everything for the offense and not just the running game, but also the passing game. So maybe it's fair to say this instead of, we don't know if he's a good pass or not. Maybe it's fair to say he's comfortable in an offense that allows him a few runs, maybe get hit a few times to really open up what he sees from a passing game. So uh, I I think you still have the potential to have a very capable rushing attack. Um, And I don't know that it's just about the yard from fields as much as as it is. It opens up the scheme. I think anybody who's watched Ohio State extensively this year will realize that they really haven't used Justin Fields as a running option uh, consistently much. They've used him more as a running threat uh, than anything else, but because of the lack of depth at the quarterback position, it did not behoove them to let him get hit all that often because the drop-off from Fields to whomever his backup would be was significant enough that it wasn't worth the risk. So hopefully for Ohio State fans' sake, uh, he can be back to, to at least somewhat close to normal and can get that offense running like it has throughout the season with all of the options uh, like you talked about. 
Daniel, you said in the video that while you're not, you wouldn't put money on it now and you wouldn't necessarily predict it yet, but you have a feeling that whomever wins the Ohio State Clemson semifinal might just blow out whether it's LSU or Oklahoma in the championship game. Um, and I think most people, and I haven't seen the video that you guys have put out for the other semifinal yet, but I would assume that most people feel like LSU is going to be that team. So what is it about that gut feeling that you have that you think the winner of Clemson, Ohio State might end up having a much easier game to the national championship game than they did just getting there? Well, I think some of it, and we're we're very data driven, so it's not fair for me to say this, but I do it to Josh all the time. I make him do gut feel kind of things, and I just have a feeling. First of all, I love this matchup, Clemson Ohio State. I love it. I know Ohio State fans aren't wild about the fact that they got bumped down to number two to play this game, and I get that. But as a objective football fan, these are the two matchups I wanted to see in the semifinals. I'm a little concerned with LSU and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and that the issue of not so much that he's this great running back. He's kind of a great all-arounder, but he's so key to their passing game because we talked about isolating linebackers. He does a lot in that space in terms of isolating linebackers and being a really good outlet, kind of like a designed outlet for Burrow. Um, that it opens everything up and it just takes everything off schedule. I think if you take him out of the game, also they have very talented backs behind them, but they're not great in pass protection, which is also a big deal. Um, we like to talk about on the show a lot of times where we might rank a team higher than another team, but think they could potentially lose to them. And I think it's just a matchup issue. I don't love the matchup of LSU versus Clemson or Ohio state, mainly because LSU can get in a shootout with Alabama and maybe win um, or can play an Auburn who's struggling on one side of the ball uh, offensively and, and eke out a win, even though Auburn's defense played really well. How do they do against a complete team? And it's kind of the concern we have with Ohio State, how they do against a, an elite passer. How does LSU do against a team that can get a couple of stops, get your offense off schedule, but also when they get the ball, they're not going three and out. And that's my concern with LSU. Again, we could be totally wrong because of the lack of external data points. LSU might come out and roll. Clemson might come out and just stomp everybody. We don't know. But based on what I've seen this year and the fact that they're probably going to be hobbled at running back, um, and I say this to say, you know, we're not talking about Oklahoma right now, but I, I think that game might be pretty pretty ugly. I don't love LSU in the final, based on what I've seen so far. Semifinals can change my opinion, but I feel like you've got two complete teams on one side of the ball, or on one side, and then you got LSU has, who has got a better offense than either of those, but is not nearly as complete. I think that I think that totally makes sense, especially when you are comparing Ohio State and Clemson, who have both played, again, competition notwithstanding have been really well-rounded teams this season uh, for most of the entire season, while LSU has had a much better defensive effort in the last three, four weeks of the season. They have not been well-rounded all season, so I think that totally makes sense, especially as you pull it forward into that elite-level competition like you guys have both been talking about. But to kind of uh, wrap things up here, both both of you individually and your model have the game very close. The model has it with Clemson being a less than a half-point uh, favorite in, in that. Uh, Daniel, you've got the game as a five-point game in Clemson's favor. Josh, you've got it as three points for Ohio State. All of those totals are very close. SP Plus has it close. Vegas has it close. So I, I, 
I'm not too worried about which direction and by how many points. But if something is going to break from that and it's no longer going to be a close game, what would something, one way or the other, for Ohio State or Clemson, what would we be able to see early on that shows that, okay, this is something that we weren't quite sure about, whether in the data or the film, but early in that first quarter, maybe early in the second quarter, we see one team doing X that says this might be a bigger margin of victory than we all, uh, than we might otherwise have anticipated. So I'll take that question first, and then maybe I'll pass it off to Daniel. So I'll I'll talk about what would happen to make Ohio State win, and then I'll let Daniel defend his position, talking about how Clemson maybe could run away with it. I, I think the biggest thing for Ohio State, and I touched on it earlier, it's how Ohio State puts you in a bad position formationally. So a, a lot of Clemson fans love to talk about, you know, A.J. Terrell is a great player. Uh, Isaiah Simmons is an All-American level uh, player. Ohio State is going to be a unique challenge because Clemson can't really play their game defensively. Venables likes to be very aggressive. He likes to do a lot of different things in the back end. And another thing we, we sort of pointed out in a tweet, last year when Clemson played Alabama, they played that game with six guys in the box against a three-wide set. And they had a numbers disadvantage almost the entire game intentionally. It's why Alabama ran the ball well. It's not that Alabama was such a great run team. It was... Clemson said, you know what? We've got this defensive line. We're going to play a guy short in the front seven, and we're going to give up four and a half yards of carry, and that's fine because we don't think you're going to be able to do that the whole way down the field. And then once the field got compressed and they played it straight up because the RPO goes away inside the 20 and 30, and they played straight numbers, Alabama couldn't move the ball. They can't do that this year. They don't have the same defensive line. They can't play that kind of football. And more importantly, because of the fact that Fields is a runner, you have to have another guy in the box. So guys like Isaiah Simmons that they've loved to move around all over the place. I already talked about how you're 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 kind of stuck playing something like a single high with four D linemen, or you know if you want to play two linebackers, two safeties, and four def defensive linemen, that line the uh, linebackers probably gonna have to go out in coverage a lot. That means Isaiah Simmons can't really move around, or if he does move around, even you know wherever you want to put him, he's probably going to be stuck taking some particular assignment because it's incredibly difficult to stay sound against that kind of setup. Um, and and I think what could break in that situation is isolation matchups. The way Ohio State killed Wisconsin in the first game was by spreading Wisconsin out, and then they would run the zone read with Dobbins, they would get to the edge, and Wisconsin's linebackers were not athletic enough to stay with J.K. Dobbins, and he broke a bunch of big runs. Clemson has the same deficiency. Skalski at linebacker is not an overly uh, athletic guy. They actually have some guys like him, Tanner Muse at safety, that are a real athletic mismatch with Ohio State's players. And if you have Olave on Muse, it's a win. And the problem is, unlike when they played Alabama, I don't think they can go to safety and, and survive against the run, so they can't cover for those deficiencies the way they did against Alabama last year. They can get matched up one-on-one, -on -one and give up some really big plays or get gouged in the run game and, and end up not being able to control it defensively. Uh, and then pair that with a defense in Ohio State that has the ability to rush the passer with Chase Young, which Lawrence at times when he's got, had pressure, which he didn't have again last year with an Alabama team where literally every pass rusher in the team was injured, you know, he's looked pedestrian at times. So there's reason to believe Lawrence regresses to the six yard per attempt to guy he was for about half the year this year facing a pass rush. And then Ohio State basically avoids everybody good on Clemson's defense and then just runs ISO plays on their what are athletically deficient guys, frankly, uh, and then gets major mismatches. I think that's a way that Ohio State can break this game open. 
Okay, I like that. For something that I'm going to like probably less, Daniel, what do you think it will look like if Clemson runs away and, and, and hides in this game? I think it's a couple of things. First and foremost, we've seen Ohio State a couple of times, we'd like to say, look mortal, and it's really just been in first halves, first halves of games. Um, my concern is what happens, Michigan State, they come out sleepy, that's a bad team. Michigan State couldn't take advantage of Ohio State's mistakes or Ohio State's inability to really put up points early. Um, same thing with Wisconsin in, in both games, really. Um, Ohio State ran away with both of them, especially the first one, but it was it was a back and forth early. Um, Michigan concerns me a little bit, but again, we had players, you know, we're talking about players being out there. If Clemson can can su- successfully drive the field, um, that would be a concern for me if I'm an Ohio State fan. One of the things we saw against Alabama last year is they weren't great on first and second down. Uh, if you look at the numbers, they're actually really bad. They were relying on and feasting on these 30, 40 yard pass plays on third and 16. If Clemson can drive the field consistently and run the ball, that would be a concern for me, especially since ETN hasn't been a great running back against good competition. And it takes some of the pressure off of Trevor Lawrence. Um, So if, if Ohio state wants to avoid being blown out or even, you know, win the game, I need them to come out, not sleepy. If Clemson wants to win this game, they need to be able to rely on more than just bombs away because they're not going to be able to do that against these Ohio State corners. Um, and they need to get pressure on Justin Fields. Even if Justin Fields is, he- is healthy, I think there's some concern there that he is prone to give up sacks. Um, and I think that will force him into making some some mistakes with his arms. With his arm, he's only throwing one of them. Um, so... <laughs> Again, for me, big thing, can Clemson move the ball consistently as a function of their normal offense, especially when they get past the first or second drive script plays? And can they get pressure on the quarterback? If they do both of those things, it might be a long day for Ohio State. But I want to add this because we've seen a lot of this on Twitter. Clemson fans love throwing out the 2016 thing. That is so ridiculous to me. And I know my my segment was to defend Clemson, but... I cannot stand. They're also pushing this, you know, 41-16 thing. That game happened last year. 2016 happened in 2016. Neither one of those things have any bearing on this game. You know, Ohio State fans like to throw out 2014. That has no bearing on this game either. This game is these teams this season, and it would not, no result in this game would surprise me. Ohio State killing Clemson, Clemson killing Ohio State, a really close game. No result would surprise me because these teams are their own thing. And this season is very much in a vacuum. And we don't know what we don't know about either one of them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. Also, thanks, of course, to Josh and Daniel from College Football Nerds. You can follow them on Twitter at CFB Nerds, and you can find their videos at collegefootballnerds.com or on YouTube at youtube.com slash collegefootballnerds. If you are finding this podcast episode on the LandGrantHolyLand.com website, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can find me at BWWMATT. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon in Go Bucks.